O Lord, the God who avenges, O God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, O Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the alien. They murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob pays no heed. Take heed, you senseless ones among the people. You fools, when will you become wise? Does he who implanted the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches man lack knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man. He knows that they are futile. Blessed is the man you discipline, O Lord, the man you teach from your law. You grant him relief from days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will take a stand for me against evildoers? Unless the Lord had given me help, I would have soon dwelt in the silence of death. When I said, my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. Can a corrupt throne be allied with you, one that brings on misery by its decrees? They band together against the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my fortress and my God the rock in whom I take refuge. He will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will destroy them. This is God's word. Uh, The second reading is from 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 3, verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 5. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you, or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent." It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. This is God's word. 
Thanks for those readings. Uh, my name's Phil. Um, if you're new here, I look forward to meeting you after the service. I just thought it's, there are a number of, uh, I know, new people at this time of year. It's worth just saying something about what, what it means to come along to church. Look, we teach from the Bible every week. If, you, um, if you're regular, you'll know that. Uh, I guess if you're new to those things, if a friend has brought you along, you'll hear all sorts of things that you might think are absolutely nuts and even highly offensive. Church isn't somewhere you've got to agree with everything to come along. So you're very welcome to come along. All you've got to be willing to do is to think and to engage with what the Bible has to say. Uh, And you're very, very welcome. So whether you agree with everything that's said from the front or you violently disagree, but you you just want to find out more, you're hugely welcome to to come along here as a church, just as long as you're open to think and to engage with with God's word, the Bible. That's what we're about. I'm going to pray for God's help for, for me as I speak and for all of us as we listen. And we'll look at this passage in 1 Corinthians together. Father God, I do pray that you would help me to say what is true. And I pray that you would give us uh, open hearts that we might receive and believe your truth. Amen. Uh, Sometimes in life, one thing matters. And it really doesn't matter what else you get right. If you don't get this thing right, it really doesn't much matter what else you've managed to do well. Uh, Imagine... (laughs) This is going to hurt. Uh, But imagine the review of the England Rugby World Cup. Well done, Australia. Yeah, yeah. Well done, Wales. Well done, Japan. Well well done pretty much everybody else. But imagine imagine the review. So they sit down in a room, the the England management, and uh, the RFU board says, so how do you think it went? Well, we killed it with the marketing campaign. Brand awareness for England rugby has never been higher. Absolutely amazing. And we, we totally won the, the battle for TV rights. The, the, the nights when England played, we had more than half of all people watching television in England were watching the England game. That is pretty amazing. And as far as the logistics and the admin and the transport go, it was extraordinary triumph. There was no travel chaos uh, with England Rugby 2015. I would say it was an extraordinary success. You imagine that, the head of the office... Uh, well, yeah, wonderful, well done. One, just nitpicking, really, but did we win? <laughs> you see, who cares how well administrated the thing was? If you're England rugby, if you don't even get out of the group, it doesn't matter how good your brand awareness is and your TV viewing figures are. It's been a disaster. <laughs> I'm glad to have got that off my chest in public. Um, yeah, it's all very amusing, uh, especially for the Australians amongst us. Uh, so let me tell you about something slightly more serious. Uh, and that's for, for each of us. As we go through life, there will be things that go well and things that go badly. There are all sorts of metrics we use to measure how well is life going, relationally, financially. All sorts of things we look at. But there is one thing that if we don't get that right, it doesn't matter how good everything else is. There is one thing that if we get that right, it doesn't matter how much else goes wrong. We've won. And that is judgment day. You see, the Bible teaches that uh, when I die, I don't just rot. I meet almighty God in judgment. And on that day, eternity separates before us. Heaven and hell. Eternity of paradise with God or eternity cut off from him forever. 
And the Bible's pretty clear that unless that day goes well, it doesn't matter what else has happened, frankly. And really, that's the truth that, that drives this passage. Um, and we'll, uh, as we'll see, uh, Paul says, look, if you fail to get through judgment day, it doesn't matter how wise you are in every other area of life, eternally you'll look like a fool. But if on judgment day you're commended by God, then even if you've bogged up everything else about life, eternally you'll look wise, you'll look like a success. Uh, let's, uh, if you want to open, uh, I think it's page 1146, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18, as we dive in. So Paul is basically he's banging the same drum that he's been hitting on for a couple of chapters now. He's urging the church, don't be shaped by the world around you in Corinth. Be shaped by the cross. Be shaped by following Jesus and by the life of self-sacrifice that he lived. He says, look, stop following worldly wisdom. The result of trying to be like the world outside has meant that this church, the church in Corinth, is bickering and divided. The problems get even worse in the later chapters. But here he's saying you're bickering and you're divided because you're being just like the world out there and you're focused and fixated on which human leader you particularly trust in. He says, you're a church that trusts more in the power of the human leaders that you've been given by God than in the power and wisdom of the God who gave you those leaders. And he says, and the problem is, if you try to be shaped by the world, you're going to completely miss the truth of Christianity because so much of what is at the heart of Christianity is completely contrary to so much of what we learn in the world. So uh, look at what Jesus teaches. Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Whoever wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Mark 8.35 and Mark 9.35. That is not wise in first century Corinth or in 21st century London. It's just nuts. <laughs> so I get rich by giving away all my money. Is that what you're saying? The way to live is to die. That's just stupid. I mean, that's what, that's what people think. We just got used to those verses because they're in the Bible and we're familiar with them. But when you read them like that, they're just stupid in any other realm of life. Paul says, yeah, the Bible is not like the wisdom of the world. To follow Jesus, to, to be a Christian, is to turn your back on the wisdom of the world. But it's not to be stupid because of one very, very important fact. It is not utter stupidity because of judgment day. Judgment day makes the wise foolish and the foolish wise. So it's the big point really that undergirds this passage. Judgment day makes the wise appear foolish and the foolish wise. It says because of the reality that we will all stand before God on judgment day, for his eternal justice. A lot of things that seem very wise now will look pretty stupid at that moment. And a lot of things that seem very foolish now, like giving up your life to serve others or dying for the sake of Jesus will seem like an enormously wise, street-smart decision on the day when God brings all things into judgment. That's really uh, Paul's point in verse 18 to 20. Um, Judgment day makes the wise foolish and the foolish wise. Um, Let's just see how he does that though. Uh, Look with me, page 1146, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool. So he may become wise. 
For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Well, what on earth has that got to do with Judgment Day? If you were concentrating, you probably notice it never mentions Judgment Day. So how, what's going on? Well, do you remember the, 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 the first reading we had from Psalm 94? Uh, Paul quotes two Old Testament passages. You'll see that um, the little um, quotation marks uh, here in uh, 19 and 20. The first is from uh, Job 5 and verse 13, and then the second from Psalm 94 and verse 11. And in each case, the Old Testament passage is making the same point. Both uh, Job and the psalmist are looking out in the world and seeing that there are an awful lot of, well, downright snide, cunning, wicked people doing very, very well and living comfortable lives, thank you very much. And there are some very godly, good, humble, decent people who love the Lord Jesus and they are being crushed, oppressed, destroyed. But, as the quotation goes, God catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. In both passages, this complaint that that wicked people are getting ahead and good people are being trampled on sits in the context of a promise that God will one day bring judgment. He will catch out the crafty, the wicked. He will expose the foolishness of their ways. And so no matter how far ahead they get in this life, they will be brought low once. It's what both the passages that he quotes teach. The day is coming when God will judge everything, every action, every word, every thought will be brought into his perfect light before his throne. And on that day, as these powerful, comfortable, untouchable people head for eternal judgment, they won't look so very wise after all. Judgment day changes everything. It makes lots of things that just appear so foolish actually suddenly seem very wise. And lots of things that appear really wise in this world, it exposes us folly. And you see, Christianity only makes sense if Jesus really rose from the dead and if there really will be a judgment and an eternity. Without that, let's pack it up and go home now. It only makes sense if the supernatural claim that Jesus rose from the dead And he's coming back to judge and there is an eternity to come. Only if those things make sense. Only if those things are true does Christianity have any credibility, any value at all. And if you like, I think the rest of this passage really, um, Paul cashes out three ways in in which that truth um, should drive them to behave in in ways which are truly wise, not worldly wise. So uh, firstly, be eternally rich. And so don't boast in mortals. Uh, Secondly, Ministers are stewards, so look for faithfulness. And thirdly, God will reveal the truth, so look for his praise. So he, having established this thing that look, God will bring all the wise cunning of humans and bring it down. He then says, okay, so given that, this is how you should live. So firstly, you are eternally rich, don't boast in mortals. Verse 21, so then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Seriously, you're telling people in Corinth, you should really come to our church. You should look into Christianity because because we've got this amazing leader. He is such a powerful speaker. Life just makes sense when you listen to him. 
And you're squabbling over which of you is the most spiritual because of which leader you're in with, who, which leader you spend most time with. Seriously, that is ridiculous. Now, I guess that there are very few of us who find ourselves saying to our colleagues, now, I know you think Christianity is intellectually ridiculous and a terribly enslaving way to live your life. But if you could just meet Phil and hear him, all right, don't laugh so loud. Uh, Very few of us are thinking that, are we? Um, And I'm glad. Um, But lots of us, the truth is that lots of us do have our pet preachers. Whether It's amazing the number of people who will miss church happily when they realize that their favorite preacher is not preaching that Sunday. Or how many of us uh, think the only people who will really feed us or the only people who could ever get through are our favorite pet preacher from the internet. And so we effectively, we trust more in the, in this minister here, whether he's at local church or on the internet, than we do in the Jesus the minister's been trying to tell us about. Now he's been saying this is utterly ridiculous behavior to be so fixated on human leaders and trusting in them for a few chapters. Uh, but here, his argument is different. It is complicated, but it is Utterly extraordinary. So um, concentrate. Look down with me at 21 to 23 again. So then no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. What's he saying? He's saying, look, in Christ you have everything, everything. Absolutely everything that exists is yours in Christ if you trust in him. God made every atom that vibrates in the universe. Every single one of it bears his mark of ownership, his stamp, his trademark is on it. All of the seven billion, billion, billion atoms in your body, a few more for some of us, a few less for others, but all of them owned by God. Every single atom that comprises the farthest away star we can see, 13.3 billion light years away every atom in that star made by owned by marked by God and he has given everything the Bible says to his son the Lord Jesus Christ he owns it all it's his inheritance as the son of God and when you put your trust in Jesus we become joint heirs with him we are in Christ with Christ united to him and therefore what is his is Mine and yours, ours, if we're in Christ. We share in his rule of the universe. And in the meantime, everything that exists is in the hands of God and he is using everything for the blessing of his people. You see that, uh, I think, most clearly um, with with Jesus Christ. But he makes the point with everything. You see, he says, uh, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. The teachers that you boast in have been given by God. They belong to you. God's given them for your blessing. This world, this life, even death, it is for you. How do you own those things? Well, because in the hands of God, everything is used for the blessing of his children. You own all these things. The present and the future, all are yours. I mean, think about it. Jesus Christ has been given By God for you. When we could not pay the debt for our sin, God gave his son. And we're told along with him, he gives us all things. Everything in the universe belongs to you and me if we trust in Jesus Christ. And yet, 
you Corinthians, the things you boast about and say are great about being a Christian are your church leaders. Are you nuts? I mean, it is utterly ridiculous. But then when we're speaking about our Christian faith, it's so easy for us to to speak about it in ways that are appealing to our culture, to talk about things that, you know, make sense to people. It's slightly less embarrassing. You know, let's not talk about the sort of spiritual stuff. We can talk about the great community at church instead of speaking about God and a relationship with him. Eternal forgiveness that wipes out guilt and shame. A relationship with God by his spirit living in us. The promise of eternal life. The security of knowing that God is sovereign over every detail of my life and is working it for his blessed good. Purpose, meaning, fulfillment, joy, family, all a gift in God. Why would we boast in anything else? It's hard to illustrate what's going on, um, but perhaps I'm going to illustrate the stupidity in a very realistic way. Um, So you're on your commute to work tomorrow with your flatmate, Tim, and as you come to the station, there's Richard Branson. It's a realistic illustration, this one. Uh, And Richard Branson says, hello, I'm Richard Branson. Uh, You can pull my goatee, check it's really me, and I'm going to give you a million pounds if you just go around the circle line and come back here million pounds all you've got to do is get on the circle line and go all the way around and come back here and I'll give a million pounds to anybody else who you tell to do it who does it and here's my lawyer and here's a binding contract mm, yeah, it's, it works so you sign on the dotted line get on the train with Timmy this is fantastic one stop later a friend of yours uh, gets on the train and he says oh, nice to see you good weekend rubbish rugby uh, and then he gets up to get off at the couple of stops later for his for his work. He says, oh, you should stay on the train. He says, why? I work here. Oh, it's not a very nice day outside. Why don't you just stay on for a few more? Well, I work here. But if you stay, you can, you can chat to my housemate, Tim, and he is a cracking guy. You'd love him. He's just such a barrel of laughs. Seriously, you should stay just for one loop of the circle line. You, I promise you won't regret it. Why? I want to go to work. I know, but you could, you could hang out with Tim. My mate Tim is just the best. That's why I live with him and not you. No offense, but you know, <laughs> hang out with Tim. Do you not want to mention the million pounds? And here are the Corinthians boasting about their great leaders and telling people, oh, our church is great. We've got Apollos coming to speak next weekend. Yet you have forgiveness and a relationship with the one and true living God. You and I, uh, we may not have the same issues as Apollos, um, as the Corinthians did with Apollos and Paul, but we have so much more to offer than sometimes we do. Let's tell people the truth about what they can have through Jesus Christ. Let's not be embarrassed about the riches that can be theirs. See, on Judgment Day, lots of the things that we, oh gosh, it sounds so odd, that we feel a bit unsure about speaking about about Christianity, will suddenly look eternally wise, eternally rich, and eternally wonderful. Let's not be, let's not lose our confidence to offer those wonderful blessings now. So the reality of Judgment Day, the day when everything will be revealed, it changes the way we should think about human leaders at church. They're just servants. The treasure is the gospel that they should be telling us about, not the people. It changes the way we should think about uh, church leaders in another way too. And the second thing we see is that ministers are stewards, so look for faithfulness. And ministers are stewards, look for faithfulness. Chapter 4. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. And as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful 
Those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. Ministers are not just servants serving God. We're also stewards. A steward is somebody who's given something that's not their own to deal with it as they've been told and pass it on faithfully. And you judge how well a steward has done uh, only by one criteria, and that is how faithful they've been to what they were told by the owner. That's the only criteria that matters. And a Christian minister, verse uh, 1, is uh, a steward of the, the secret things of God, the mystery of God. Remember the secret things, the mystery, it doesn't mean sort of some weird thing with the Illuminati and a summer solstice ceremony. It just means a locked box, something that has to be opened, revealed, told to us for us to know it. And always in the Bible it's about the gospel. The extraordinary message that you and I could never have come up with, that God would conquer the evil out there in the world and forgive the evil in here in our hearts by becoming a man and dying on a cross to pay for our sins and then rising again to defeat death and new life. We'd never have come up with that. It has to be revealed to us by God. And that's what ministers are to do. And it doesn't matter how big a minister grows his church, how many Twitter followers he has, how many books he writes, unless he is faithfully proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. It's a total waste of everybody's time. Stewards must give an account. And the ministry must be faithful to what God has said, not to what our culture will accept. And that's a real challenge for, uh, for many, for all. We must be faithful to what God has said, not to what culture will accept. I mean, think about it. Uh, Paul could have made Christianity take off much more quickly. If Paul had not stressed the need for sexual purity... I mean, ancient Greco-Roman culture uh, made Hugh Hefner look like a, a prude, a Victorian prude. It was, you, I mean, you have no idea. Church services in Corinth involved uh, mass prostitution. And if Paul had just gone soft on the need for sexual purity, it would have been much easier sell in Corinth. If uh, Paul had gone soft on the need to, to take up your cross and live a life of humble self-sacrifice, serving others. Well, in, in, in Roman culture, the last thing you want to be is weak. In Rome, pride was not a sin. It was the cardinal virtue to be a proud, strong man. It would have been a much easier sell in Rome if you'd said Christianity is good to be proud and strong. If they'd not, if Paul had, you know, not stressed that you you have to put your trust in Jesus Christ alone as Lord, then then you wouldn't risk being persecuted for not worshiping the Roman emperor. And it'd been much easier to convince people because they wouldn't have been risking their lives to become Christians. Paul could have made it so much easier and probably grown the church so much quicker if if he'd just changed the message. And he'd have looked very wise and successful until he stood before Jesus Christ on Judgment Day, and Jesus said, "What have you done?" And it would have been clear that all the crowds Paul had following him, none of them were really following Jesus. Paul knew he would face God in judgment day and therefore Paul's concern was to be a faithful steward. Not stirring up great crowds, but faithfully proclaiming the gospel. And if God brought the crowds, great. And if God didn't, he wouldn't change the message. It's like if you're in a hospital and you have been given the task of taking cancer drugs to a patient. You are a steward. You are to take them to the patient and give them. And it's no good you saying, oh, look, every time I give them to the patient, they, they get horribly ill and they feel terrible and their hair falls out. 
Whereas when I give morphine to the other patients, they seem really happy and it goes, great, why don't I just, you know, give them this because it'll make them... F- no, you're a steward. You, you faithfully carry out the charge you were given. And whenever we change the gospel, <laughs> we, we don't add to it, we take from it, we ruin it. We actually, even though we give people what they want, we take away what saves life. We must be faithful stewards. I guess for all of us, uh, don't look for flash in ministers. You won't find it in many, but don't look for flash. Look for faithfulness to Christ crucified. That's what matters. The old phrase somebody said, we're, um, a, a genuine Christian minister is a nobody trying to tell everybody about the somebody, Jesus. That's what you look for. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the same goes when you and I get opportunities to speak about Jesus. If we're not church ministers, we are stewards of the gospel. It's not up to us to change the bits we don't like, the things we don't think work. We're to be faithful. Thirdly, lastly, God will reveal the truth. So look for his praise. This flows on from his point that ministers are stewards. Uh, Verse 3. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. And if Paul was writing by the wisdom of this world, he'd have stopped there and we'd all say, yes, this is the message of our culture. This is Lady Gaga and everybody. No one judges me. I am who I am. I live life my way. I do what I want. But we say that because we think the only judgment that matters on my life is me, my judgment, my voice, my verdict. But Paul's argument is different. He carries on the second half of verse 3. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. He says, look, at one level, I really don't care what you think of my ministry. On It just doesn't bother me. But then I don't even care what I think about it at one level because it's, what matters is, is what God thinks. I'm a faithful steward. When I die, I'll stand before God and it's whether he says I've been faithful. That's what counts. That's all that really matters. Um, there, was a, there was a guy here who was an apprentice at the same time as me, Andy Martin. He's one of the nicest people you could ever meet. He was the sort of person that if he hit you with a snowball in a snowball fight, he would run over and apologize. He was that sort of a nice person. Um, and when we were at theological college, he came over to me one morning at breakfast and said, can I get some legal advice? I used to work as a lawyer. I didn't know any law really then. I knew even less by this stage. And I was thinking, but every now and then people would come up with a parking ticket and say, can I have some legal advice? As if I had any idea. Anyway, I thought, oh, great. This is marvellous. Lickety spit clean Andy Martin has a parking ticket. Finally, we have something on him. I read the letter. It was a, it was a judgment from the high court rather than the county court for possession with intent to supply of class A drugs and possession of illegal firearms. <laughs> he was like, I have done nothing. What transpired is, I kid you not, I'm not making up any of this, there was a, a Colombian criminal mastermind named Andreas Martinez, <laughs> whose, whose, address, whose address was just a couple of letters different from Andy Martin, and their details had got messed up in the, in the system. So, <laughs> so Andy had been convicted for the misdeeds of Andreas Martinez, the, the career criminal. 
As soon as we realized that, we all knew he was innocent. He knew he was innocent. But I tell you what, he did not rest easy. He didn't care that we knew he was innocent. He didn't sleep easy because his conscience was clear. He did not rest until the judge had said, yeah, he's innocent. He's totally innocent. His record should be expunged. That was the only verdict that really mattered to Andy, was the judge of, uh, of whatever it was, Crown Court. And given the reality of eternity that stands before you and me, there is actually only one verdict that matters over your life. It is not anybody else out there or in here. It's not your parents. It's not your friends. It's not even your verdict on your life. The only verdict that really, really counts for all eternity is the verdict of Jesus Christ, the judge of all mankind. What will he say of you and me when we stand before him? That opinion divides the destinies of all mankind for all eternity. Just before we uh, think about that for a moment, I just think it is worth just spending one moment just unpacking conscience, which this, this passage deals with. And I think Christians especially get very confused about it. What is a con- Your conscience is your inner moral compass. It's your, your inner moral courtroom that weighs your actions and decides whether they're good or bad. And you have two duties to your conscience. All people, you have two duties to your conscience. You must obey it and you must educate it. You must obey it because your conscience tells you when when you're doing something right or wrong. And so if you disobey it, you're doing something you know to be wrong. You're sinning. So you must obey your conscience. So Paul, verse 4, is keen to keep a a clean conscience. But you must do more than obey it because, do you see in verse 4, that even if he obeys, he says, "Even um, even if my conscience is clean, that doesn't make me innocent. Because our conscience can be, in Bible language, it can be seared, weak, or defiled. I remember sitting having a drink with a friend who told me, my conscience is clear. I feel totally at peace about this. Which was interesting because he was talking about leaving his wife to have an affair. See, our consciences are not always reliable. We're very good at deceiving ourselves. But as we read here in uh, verse 5, God can expose the motives of our hearts. So our duties, obey your conscience. Do what you feel like you is right, but educate your conscience. Be humble enough to recognize your conscience isn't perfect. I'm not the perfect moral arbiter and therefore I keep needing to bring my conscience to the light of scripture and check that what I think is right is what God thinks is right. Judgment day is a sobering reality that all of us will stand before Jesus Christ but it is also the most liberating truth to know that no other verdict on our lives matters. There's a, a wonderful story of a well-known Methodist preacher named Andrew Cartwright um, uh, a century or so ago. He was known for being rather forthright. And one day, he was, a, he was an American, and one day um, he was warned that the president was going to be in the congregation that particular morning. And so he was told, you know, just avoid anything too controversial. Uh, and so he, uh, he stood up and said, I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here, and so I should be careful what I should say. Let me say this. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent of his sins. (laughs) The end of the talk, Andrew Jackson, the president, came up to him and said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the whole world. There's nothing more liberating than knowing, you know what? Nobody's opinion determines my destiny. Not the president of the United States, not even my own. Only God. It liberates you to speak the truth. To be the, the man or the woman God has made you to be. 
it liberates you to go and live a life that pleases God. And the wonderful news at the end here is that you can please him. In spite of God seeing right into the depths of our hearts, of verse 5, do you see how it, it ends? Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. That is not an encouraging start to the verse. But then he says, at that time, each will receive his praise from God. Why is that? Because the message that Paul was to be a faithful steward of, the message that Paul proclaimed was the message of the cross. That Jesus' death paid for every sinful action that Paul committed, every sinful word he spoke, and every sinful motive within his heart. And that for those who trust in Jesus, there is complete forgiveness. And more than that, there is also transformation that by his spirit, we are now able to live lives that please God. That will, that will bring God's praise on judgment day. It's an extraordinary thought. You and I don't need to fear judgment day if we trust in the Lord Jesus. You don't need to fear it. We have the assurance of salvation. But we should want to make our lives count. We are stewards of the gospel. We will stand before God and give an account. We have this, this treasure that can bring salvation and a relationship with God for all people. How busy are you and I with our evangelism, with inviting others to share in God's good news? We've got a city dying for, for lack of knowledge of the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. And we as a church have the message of the cross. We need to be busy. We need to be faithful. Looking forward to the day when God will praise everything that we've faithfully done in his name as we seek to proclaim Jesus in this city that needs him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that uh, there is a judgment day that all things will come before you. We thank you uh, that there is a saviour and so we do not need to fear that day. And we thank you that you have entrusted the message of salvation so that people even like us can, can bring others from darkness to light, can bring others from the fear of eternal death to the promise of eternal pleasure and praise of God. Amen.